Well, good evening. Hey, Amen. That was great choice in music. I mean, I, I almost feel like who wrote those songs were thinking about this passage tonight. Um, just lots of stuff was, was was drawn into my mind as I was listening to the singing the songs from what I've been preparing. And, and I hope God will use it tonight in your hearts as well like he has mine. Uh, but turn in your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 3. And we're going to be reading the prayer at the very end of that chapter. It's the verses 14 through 21. Just a few short verses. And as you're turning there, I just want to share some initial thoughts on this prayer or about it or just this evening before we dive in. And as we go through this prayer, I'd like you to ask yourself some questions. Be thinking about these questions. Is this true of me? Do I pray this way? Should I pray this way? Or why should I pray this? Am I experiencing what the Apostle Paul is asking God for here? And if so, how can I know? And hopefully we'll explore some of those things tonight. You know, Paul is not just setting out here to write some eloquent prayer to be captured in in the annals of history. You know, he has these deep, deep residing desires for these people. You know, and there's a danger here for us. It's a danger for us to just read this prayer, to recite it, even remember it, but never experience it. That's not what we want. You know, this is a deeply experiential prayer of Paul. He greatly wants his readers to have these same experiences that he's had. So for just a few moments, I'd like for you to, to place yourself into the audience of, of Paul, who he's writing to here. He's writing to the church at Ephesus around 62 AD. Um, they're living under persecution at the time. Paul's in prison. He's writing one of the several epistles that he wrote from, from, uh, from prison. Imagine yourself in this room with him. Maybe you've been imprisoned for your faith. Or it may be in front of you. But you know what? You're just an ordinary believer. Just like the rest of his audience. And you've received this letter from your spiritual father. Who is now in prison and likely you'll never see again. You know, times are tough here. Pressures from within and without abound. And after two glorious chapters describing the riches of God in Christ Jesus, Paul tells these fledgling believers, he tells them not to lose heart at his tribulations on their behalf. And he then begins to express this prayer that he prays for them. And this is the setting that we find ourselves in. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this passage tonight for for capturing this prayer in Paul's heart and guiding him to write it and to record it. There are many truths, many glorious and wonderful truths in this prayer, and I know we'll only scratch the surface tonight. And I know in my lack of eloquence and and surely the lack of, of knowledge and understanding of many of the deep truths in this scripture. Lord, I do yet pray, though, that you would use it in the lives of your people tonight to encourage them 
to challenge them to convict where need be, to comfort, just like Paul had wanted to comfort his readers. Use this, Lord, in the, in, in the lives of your people tonight. And I also want to lift up our brothers and sisters around the world right now in Afghanistan. It's, it's a terrible, tragic thing happening right now. And I do know that there are believers there who are trapped. And for all, all outward appearances, have no hope. But Lord, comfort them now. Remind them of the hope that is within them. Remind them of the truths that you have taught them. And comfort them in these times. And Lord, I pray that even your children around the world, around the country, especially in our country where we have it so easy, I pray that you would would move your people to be lifting up the saints, especially in this country right now, and would find a peaceful resolution to the turmoil that they're in, but give them strength and a resolute heart to withstand anything that is coming their way now. In Christ's name, amen. So we're going to begin here. I just want to read the first couple verses in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. He begins with for this reason, and usually that means it's for something he just said. And in chapter 3, there's, uh, he begins chapter 3, and he says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. And then he stops himself, and then he kind of goes into this, this long section on, on talking about the mysteries of Christ and how God has revealed them to him. Uh, and, and he feels the need to tell them this. And then he picks it back up in 14, uh, where we are tonight. You know, in chapter 1, Peter, uh, Paul is talking about the God's electing his people from eternity past. In verses 4 and 5, it says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. And then chapter 2, he brings the Gentiles together, us, into his family. He talks about the reconciliation of Jews and Gentiles. And this is a big theme of his. So he's building upon um, what he talked about in the first chapter of, of beginning this family. He, he chose this people from eternity past. And now we see the enmity between the Jews and Gentiles is, is, is no longer there. It's ending because of what Christ did. And then this is where we come to our prayer. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees. Now remember, this was Paul. He was in prison. He probably had a guard at each side as he prayed this prayer for these believers. And just think about that. Think about the, the commitment that Paul had to them. It's unparalleled. What a deep love for them to be focusing on their well-being over even his own. You don't hear of him plotting his way out of this. In fact, he even calls himself a prisoner of Christ, Jesus. He's not just a prisoner of Rome. He's a prisoner of Christ Jesus. That's who he identified with. And can we now be encouraged to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ through any trials and circumstances we find ourselves in? But what do we often do in these times? Do we forget the needs of others around us and focus only on what our needs are at the moment? 
You know, in several of Paul's letters, we see him pouring out his heart and devotion to the churches. And he mentions his regular prayers for them. Listen to Paul talk about his trials to the church in Corinth earlier in his ministry. In the second chapter of Corinthians, or second book of Corinthians, chapter 11, just listen to some of these these verses as Paul explains his circumstances. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from countrymen, dangers, dangers, dangers. He's been in labor and hardships, sleepless nights without food. What does he say in verse 28? Apart from such external things, all these external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Wow. Wow. I mean, like if anyone had a reason to complain about their circumstances, it's Paul. But what is he thinking about daily? Yeah, there's these things I'm going through. And even point to the, he even despaired at one point to the point of death. But here... He doesn't fail to mention what is really capturing his heart, and it's the churches. He's thinking about these people, and he's praying for them. You know, men usually prayed standing up. You see it all over Scripture in different postures and positions. Standing up, sitting down, on your face. And Paul says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. You know, this was an act of humility, I believe, and a total dependence upon God. He was in prison here, and he's, he's, he's expressing this prayer to God on his knees. Now, it doesn't mean that, you know, your prayers are necessarily better heard on your knees. That's not, that's not the, the point here. But I do think there is something to being on your knees and prostrate before God in prayer and, 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 and recognizing a, a total dependence upon him. And going on, he says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. Before the Father. Facing God. In prayer, we come face to face with God. Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we now have peace with. Facing. That word means facing God. Having been declared righteous at conversion, we can now face God in prayer. And you know what? Only the believer has that privilege. But do we take that privilege for granted? Do we make excuses as to why we can't come to him with boldness and confidence? And confident access, like he says at the end of verse 12 there in our chapter 3. Paul wasn't making excuses. And he probably had excuses. But he didn't see it that way. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Now there's some controversy over the word def, uh, family. You know, what does it mean? Is it, is, it, is it the family of all humans or is it, is it limited in scope? And, and the, all the commentaries were duking it out and I'm just, I'm, I'm just going to let them finish duking that out. But I do think though there are some, there are, there are at least at a minimum, there's something that he is communicating that we can all agree on. And he seems, it seems clear to me that he is talking about the family of God. The family of the redeemed of all time. Look at the end of chapter 2 verse 19. He says, so then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's what? 
household. Now, as we come to the request of Paul, we're, we're now getting into his actual request. And there are different ways to look at this. But one way I would like to suggest is let's look at this like, like a journey. We're, we're moving in uh, a direction somewhere. Like maybe we're going up a mountain and there's checkpoints along the way. You know, Spurgeon, he likened it to climbing the rungs of a ladder. You know, and there's this grand culmination at the conclusion of this prayer when it becomes true of us will take us ourselves to greater heights in our Christian life. So let me read these next few verses here. In chapter 3, verse 14, sorry, verse 16. Well, I'll just back up. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives his name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Wow, there's a lot to unpack there. So let's dive in. First, in verse 16, he says, when he prays that, you know, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, that God would grant you. Grant. It comes from God. We don't muster it up. This is not some bootstrap theology where we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and muster up in our own strength. It's not a God, it's not God helps those who help themselves theology here. This is not that. He says that God would grant you, that he would give you. This is a gift that Paul is asking for, for these believers. This is a prayer for believers. He says, grant you. He's talking to believers. And like I said, only believers have this privilege. Only the Christians do. He's been describing us in the first two chapters of this book. And he has said some pretty remarkable truths about us. And let's just read just a a few, just a couple. In chapter 1, verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Or verse 7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace the forgiveness of our trespasses. Or verse 13, in him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were what? You were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Sealed. Chapter 4, verse 30, he says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. These are great verses on eternal security of the believer. These are promises that we, we take hold of. In chapter 2, verse 4 and 5, he says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. When we were spiritually dead, he made us alive. That's regeneration. He made us alive together and raised us up in the heavenlies. You know what that is? That's glorification. These are great 
core doctrines, essential doctrines of the Christian faith that Paul is talking about here. Romans 8.30, and these whom he justified, he also glorified. That's past tense. That's already happened. In the mind of God, we are already seated in the heavenlies. And that's a wonderful truth to just reflect upon. Chapter 2, verse 18, he says, for through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So because of this reconciliation between Jew and Gentile, and the enmity was taken away, we have been reconciled, and now we have access to the Father. These are all descriptions of a family of people whom God has created. First Peter 2.9, we all know this verse, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession. We belong to him. We are in the family of God. That he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. According to the riches of his glory. What are these riches that he's talking about here? Well, first, these are inexhaustible riches. There is no limit to God's riches. We sang about this tonight in some of our music. You know, and we don't even have to leave Ephesians to, to see what Paul has in mind here. Let's jump back over just over some of the verses that we already talked about just to remind ourselves. Verse, chapter 1, verse 7, he says, according to the riches of his grace. Or chapter 1, verse 18, in his prior prayer that he prayed for them, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling and what are what? The riches of the glory of his inheritance and the saints. We read this one already in chapter 2, verse 4. Because, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, rich in mercy, verse 7, we see the riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Or how about chapter 3, verse 8? To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Unfathomable. Paul is consumed with the riches of God, the riches of his glory, the unfathomable riches. This is consuming the mind of Paul as he's writing this letter. But we also see God's attributes on display as we think about the riches of God. Let's think about his attributes. Back to the verses that we've looked at already. Chapter 1, verse 4. At the end of 4. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons. This is God's infinite love on display. And he displayed this from eternity past. Chapter 2, 4 again. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. God's infinite love. These are the riches of God. Or chapter 1, verse 19, talking about his power and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. Again, we see that in chapter 3, verse 7, the working of his power at the end of that verse. And then verse 10, so that the manifold wisdom of God The old guys called that the iridescent wisdom. It was shining, bright, manifold. It was just, just you know, pervading all of, of, of creation, God's wisdom. This is the well that Paul expects 
will be drawn from in answer to this prayer. Unfathomable, rich, infinite, manifold wisdom. All the attributes of God, which is the source of where our strength comes. And he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. To be strengthened. Why does the inner man need to be strengthened? Well, there's probably lots of reasons, but we'll give three tonight. One, we start out, number one, is we start out as babes in Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 1, Paul talks about that. He says, I could not speak to you as men or as spiritual, but as carnal, as babes in Christ. Compare a newborn in Christ to, an, uh, to a, a newborn baby. You know, the child is weak, ignorant, unaware of the dangers around him. He sees everything superficially. He doesn't see the ugliness around him with comprehension. You know, Paul was only able to give them milk, not just meat, like a child. In fact, when I was preparing this sermon, and I was reading through men's thoughts over, these passage, over this passage, honestly, I, had, I, I, could, I, I say that I, I felt myself at a supreme disadvantage. Often I would think thoughts like, this is just too deep for me. You know, it was like I was trying to swim deep down into the ocean, holding my breath, but I only could for just a few moments. And I had to rush back to the surface to catch my breath and just simply swim in the surface and the shallows. That's how I felt. And I still do. I still have that, that sense of inadequacy because of the weakness in my inner man. You know, and the same is true of the new person in Christ. They just don't know it yet. You know, one man said that prayer, it fills the lungs of the soul with the oxygen of the Holy Spirit and his power. I love that imagery. And another reason our inner man must be strengthened, well, there's also an enemy out there. And that enemy is seeking to devour Christians. It's an adversary, an accuser of the brethren. Paul even tells us in the last chapter of Ephesians that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual enemy. And you see this in the beginning of Paul, or when we read in 2 Corinthians tonight, Paul's wrestling was not against all those external circumstances. Paul knows who our real enemy is. You know, and I'll be honest, you know, one of the most difficult things in the battle of the Christian life for me is discerning between whether we are battling or whether I'm battling my own flesh or I'm battling the spiritual enemy that's around me. But you know what? Either way, I think part of that remedy is in our prayer tonight. It's found here. And third, and specifically shown from our text tonight, we see why the inner man must be strengthened. It says it right here in the very text. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. There's a causal relationship between being strengthened and the resulting dwelling of Christ in our heart. One leads to the other. In fact, necessarily so. And we'll talk more about this in a few moments. But just one more thought on strengthen. This, this idea of strengthen. It, it has this language of, of resistance. That's, that's kind of the connotation here. It means to be built up. You know, let's take it like a sickness analogy. You know, when you tackle a sickness, there's different ways to do it. There's medicine. 
you know, and then there's, you know, healthy lifestyle. Medicine's designed to really just go right at that invading germs, tackle them, but it doesn't have this building up character to it. It doesn't necessarily build you up. And, and, and I'm not saying that, that we don't need medicines. I'm grateful for them. But it has a purpose. But resistance, build, living a healthy lifestyle, you naturally build up your resistance to things. You're able to, in your training, you're able to lift more weights, run further, move faster. But Paul here is asking that we would be strengthened with power. Why? So that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith. And where are we strengthened? He tells us in the text, in the inner man. That is where we are strengthened. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 4, in verse 16, Paul says, But though our outward man is decaying or perishing, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. In Romans 7, he says, I delight in the law of God after the inward man. God's law works outward from the inner man. This is a major contrast between the Christian and the non-Christian. The latter is dead inside, as we all once were. Remember Ephesians 2.1? And you were dead in your trespasses and sin. The unbeliever can't be strengthened. It's impossible. There is nothing there to strengthen. He's dead. But the Christian, however, is alive inside. Chapter 2, 5, and when we, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together in Christ. We read that earlier. And that is the inner man. The inner man, the innermost part of our being. The spiritual part of us. Our heart, our mind, our soul and spirit. It is the new man who is in union with Jesus Christ. This is who Paul is talking about. And this is one of the the beauties of the transformation that we go through in the gospel when we are converted. And consequently, this is the paradox of our existence, is it not? Outwardly, we're decaying. We're dying. Yeah, sure, physical health, they may stem the tide of decay, but it does come. Ecclesiastes 12 talks very vividly about the, the onslaught of decay that happens over time in your life. And if, if you're growing older, you know exactly what, what I mean. And it says there's one day that we will all return to dust. Another way, this is, is, is spoken in the scientific realm, this is the second law of thermodynamics that says that everything is decaying. Evolution says that everything is getting better, but it isn't. Inwardly, we are being renewed day by day. What a glorious reality in light of the world that we live in where everything around us is breaking down, is decaying. Inside, we're not. We're being renewed. We should rejoice in that. Now here we arrive at our second step or the second rung of the ladder. It builds on it. It builds on the, the first ladder, the first rung. He says that Christ may dwell in your hearts. And of Christ, in, verse, in, in verse 17, that Christ, this is the teaching all over the New Testament. In John 14, 20, Jesus tells his disciples, In that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. That word dwell. That's what John is talking about here in abode. 
uh, or abiding with in, in us. But that word dwell, it's a compound word. And it was, it's a word that means to dwell down into a home. In other words, it means to, to settle down in a home. Christ is not just a visitor. He has come into our home to be our master. So one, this is not a salvific dwelling that Paul is talking about here. It's not the indwelling that happens at conversion. Yes, there is an initial dwelling that happens when you repent and place your faith in Christ as your Savior. When you believe the gospel, Christ indwelled you. You became a new creation. This is true of all Christians. Romans 8, 9, Paul says, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not, what? He does not belong to him. But this is a different kind of dwelling for the believer. This is Christ dwelling in you in a practical, ongoing, ever-increasing sense. Christ is coming to take up residence in the home of your heart, and he begins to take over the faculties of your mind, your will, your spirit. In essence, your heart the seed of man. And there is this master-slave relationship in view here. You're no longer the master of your own heart and enslaved to sin. You are a slave of righteousness, a slave of Christ. But why did Paul ask God for, to grant them strength for this? Well, remember, because our inner man needs that training to be able to handle more. More what? More Christ. Our inner man needs that strength. And that's our goal. That should be our goal. And you can say it in one sense. That's the goal of this passage is to know Christ and to know him more. So God grants us strength in our inner man to enable us to enable us to have more of Christ indwelling. And with that strengthened inner man, we couldn't without it, we couldn't handle even handle anymore. And would that we all pray this every day for ourselves and for each other. Imagine what that would look like. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And we pray in faith that God would grant us this strength with the power resulting in a greater dwelling, or as John puts it, abiding of Christ in us. Now we reach our third step in the latter, verses 17, the latter half of 17 to verse 19. He says, And that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length, height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. And that you, being rooted and grounded in love. This is language of, of establishment, being established. And what happens when this becomes our experience? We become rooted and grounded in love. Now that's a mixed metaphor here that Paul is using. The rooted there, that's the image of a tree we have here. When roots dig down deep into the soil, they not only provide nourishment, but they provide stability for the tree. Now the picture here is not of a young sapling, you know, one that needs support to stay up with string. Think of a tree like the giant redwood. It grows 250 feet tall, 30 feet wide. Can you imagine that root system extending out 50 feet in every direction and bringing nourishment and stability to that giant? 
I like what Martin Lloyd-Jones says here regarding this image. He says that Paul uses this, that love is the soil in which our Christian life is set and in which it grows. Love is the soil. And we'll talk more of this shortly. But grounded, rooted and grounded. This is a similar metaphor but different or founded as a lot of the commentary, commentary said. This picture is like that of being rooted, but it's also different. While a tree provides nourishment and vitality, life, this imagery of being grounded is like a building whose foundation is so secure that it can, it can withstand any wind or element. It can withstand the stresses and the strains that come with life. It's fixed. It's permanent, durable. Nothing will shake it. And as Christ dwells in us in an ever-deepening manner, we come to know Him more. And we grow to love Him more. Rooted and grounded in love. What is this love? Well, like mentioned, this is speaking of our growing love. A love for Him first and foremost. But it's also a love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a love for our min- a love of ministry and serving in God's kingdom, of assembling with the saints on the Lord's day. Ultimately, our love for everything that pertains to the truth as it is, as it is in Jesus Christ. And I ask, are you growing in your love for these things? Do you long to spend time in the word and the feet of Jesus? Do you look forward to spending time with other believers at church? Or is it a dreadful thought? Oh, I'm going to have to wrestle with these kids, these babies for two hours. I'll be exhausted. My kids won't be able to sit through prayer night. They'll understand. You might think I'm talking about you. I'm not. The Lord has pricked my heart many times over this and probably still will. You know, I remember sharing with a brother recently how when, when I'm not in prayer and in the Word, I, I feel like I'm this shriveled up grape, You're right? That's, that's turned into a raisin. It's been sitting in the scorched heat in the Sahara Desert. I mean, how much more dried up can you get than that image? I, I am dried up. The worries of the world have come in. They're choking out the spiritual life in me. My problems seem bigger. My God seems distant. My faith seems weak. And I find myself looking to distract myself with my responsibilities. Oh, I got to work. I got to do this. I got all these things to do. I don't have time. And I may not consciously think that, but my actions sure show it. You know what Paul is really driving at here in this passage? Paul is driving at maturity. Christian, the believer's maturity. He wants to see them walk maturely in their faith. He wants to see their faith deepen as their love for God and others grow. He wants to see them serve one another in Christ and walking in unity. In fact, that is what he talks about in the very next chapter when he discusses the purpose of church leadership. In chapter 4, verses 11 through 13, you've all are likely familiar with this. And he gave some as his apostles and some as prophets and, and evangelists and pastors and teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Until when? Until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man. That's his aim here. It's maturity. And that's where unity comes. 
Do you want this for yourself? For your brethren? You know what else? This takes time. It's not a sprint. Trees take hundreds, sometimes thousands of years to grow. You know, buildings must be built with precision and perfect mathematics to stand the test of time. For us, as we grow in our love for Christ through his dwelling in us, we grow the roots of our faith deep into the ground. And as the buildings of our lives are built up in truth, we find that we grow. We grow spiritually. And what happens over time? We grow in our love. It's a blessed cycle of growing. God grants us the strength for a greater indwelling in Christ, of Christ. We then become further established, rooted and grounded in our love for him, his church, for serving in his kingdom. This continues to happen throughout the Christian life, season after season after season. This is the pattern. You know, a newborn babe in Christ is just so enamored with Christ. So excited to be forgiven of his sins and to be in relationship with him. Some of you remember that. Maybe you don't. That's okay. But he has no idea what's ahead of him. The trials, temptations, the tribulations that all await him. But you know what? You talk to a believer who's been walking with Christ for 50 years... And he'll still tell you that he's just barely dipped his toes in the ocean of God's love. It's so vast. And that's the beauty of community and the community of believers at all stages of their Christian growth. This, this seasoned believer can teach that younger believer what's coming, what to look out for, what to expect. But if we aren't growing, what are we doing? We're shriveling up like that grape on the desert floor, withering away in the hot sun. If you're like me, you know what that feels like. Verse 18. As a result of being rooted and grounded in love, we may be able to then to what? To comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ. This isn't a mere intellectual understanding. It's not a gathering of data to understand a story. We aren't accumulating bits of information just to have and do nothing with. Paul isn't just conducting an exercise of putting all of his theological ducks in a row here. He wants us to know and understand the love of Christ in all its fullness. You know what this is? This is experiential knowledge. This is heart knowledge. It's not theoretical. It's not just intellectual. With all the faculties of one's heart and mind, Paul wants us to grasp this love of Christ. And in the measure in which the believer's vision of that love, which proceeds from Christ, expands their love for him and their ability to grasp his love for them will also increase. And thus the most powerful, and as one commentator put it, the most 
powerful and blessed chain reaction in the whole universe is established. I love that imagery. Verse 19, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. The finite heart and mind can never fully grasp or know infinite love. Well, guess what? That will always be the case. You think of your most treasured relationship in your life. You want to know that person, to be with them, to spend your life knowing them. Well, with Christ's love, there will always be more to experience, more to know. And this will go on into eternity. We will never plumb the depths of the ocean of God's love. Unlike our own oceans, this ocean has no bottom. We come to our last step, the fourth step in the ladder. Or if you're on the mountain journey, we're at checkpoint four. We're moving up here. Again, this is all built on the prior step. Verse 19, Paul says, And to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that in order that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. This is the culmination of Paul's prayer here. This is the pinnacle of our steps up the mountain or the ladder. We have reached the top of this prayer. So to recap this prayer, Paul prays that God would, one, grant them strength with power through his spirit in the inner man. Why? So that Christ would dwell in their hearts through faith, that causal relationship there. And that results in being uh, establishing them through being rooted and grounded in love and enables them to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. And lastly, that they would be filled up to all the fullness of God. And this is where we want to spend our last few moments as we focus on this last section. But let's look at it like this. What is it like to be filled up with God's wisdom? Well, you handle the difficulties of life properly. You have discernment to make God-honoring decisions. You know how to avoid the pitfalls of life, the temptations in front of you. You grow in your discernment of the difference between the flesh and the enemy's attacks. And Paul even expounds on this in the latter half of this this book in Ephesians where he tells us to put on the full armor of God. He knows full well what believers are going through, what they will go through. With God's wisdom, you grow in understanding your spouse evermore. And husbands, as you grow in your love for your wife, you learn more and more how to lay down your life for her like Christ laid down his life for the church. You dwell with your wife in knowledge. With, God, with God's wisdom, you trust the counsel of godly leaders. You don't ignore their counsel and make wrong choices. Well, what about God's mercy? What's it like to be filled with God's mercy? Well, for one, you begin to exercise mercy towards those around you, withholding wrath and anger. You grow in your patience towards them. You love your enemies. Speaking of love, what does God's love in you ever filling look like? Well, we know in Scripture God says that we love because He first loved us. We know that. And we've talked some tonight about our growing love for God in others as Paul's aim for this prayer. 
But what about a growing love for the lost? Do you have that kind of love burning in you? Do you look at the lost with compassion, knowing that any moment they could slip into a hopeless and Christless eternity? You know, the answers to these questions can be a good barometer of how full I am being filled with Christ's love. You go down the list of God's attributes and ask yourself, is he filling you with them in growing, increasing measure? Will you ever exhaust God's blessings here? Absolutely not. We are always just only barely dipping our toes, our toe in the sea of God's blessing and love and appropriating his own communicable attributes in our own hearts. But this shouldn't discourage us. If you're the checklist type person, don't put this one on your checklist because it's not getting checked off. This is our journey. And furthermore, we are meant to do this together in unity. And this is the theme of Paul tonight. Paul said that we may be able to comprehend with all the saints. He has the church in mind. We aren't doing this alone. This is no Lone Ranger Christianity. We are doing this in community with one another. Our love for each other should be growing in greater measure in time as the seasons of life wear on. We should be growing in our love towards one another. You know, we've had the pleasure of being a part of this assembly for almost 10 years now. You know, over the years, I've, to be honest, I've felt my affection for the brethren ebb and flow in the seasons of life as challenges have, have come and gone. But I've also had the advantage of seeing God working in the lives of others here. Each week, God's people are here sharing with us all the ups and downs, the triumphs and the tragedies, the working of God in their own hearts and lives. I've seen God grow in the lives of our young people, a burden for the lost, and their faithfulness week in and week out to preach on the streets of our town and in coming soon to our college again. I've seen families being surrounded by others in prayer and support through the loss of a child. Or how about when we celebrate when a life is born? We do that a lot around here. But isn't God so good? We get to to go through life together in, in, in community. We have to fight for that. You know, it's been a joy over this last few years, and it has endeared me to this assembly in in, in ways that I've never imagined, but I know there's still more room to grow. There is. There always is. In our last two verses, we have Paul's doxology. It's the expression of his praise in light of what he just prayed, and I'll just read them briefly here. Verses 20 and 21, he says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. And here we have the ultimate aim of the Christian in the community of believers. Isn't it comforting to know that even what we ask for from God, he is able and does give us even more than we ask. And he does it through the power that works within us through his spirit. 
It's all from him, all of him. And it's all for him. Verse 21, to him be the glory in the church. That is why we are here. We are here to the glory of God. As the church, we are the living example of representing the glory of God on earth. Yes, imperfectly. Yes, never exhausting it in its fullness. But whether in prison like Paul was, under persecution, like many of our own brothers and sisters around the world at this very moment, we pray this prayer. In times of ease, we are to be about his glory. We want to be filled up to all the fullness of God and when we are conforming more and more to the image of Christ or and we are conforming more and more to the image of Christ as his representatives. And one day when that stain of sin is removed and we step into glory, we will continue on for eternity growing in our love for him and experiencing in greater measure his love for us. It's a love that will never diminish or end. About 30 years after this letter Paul wrote to these believers in Ephesus, we see the, Paul, the, the Apostle John writing to this very same church. He writes some very sobering words for this church. I know you all have read them in Revelation chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. He says, And you, speaking to the church at Ephesus, you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. We are all prone to this. We must be vigilant. We must, well, let us bow our heads and pray this prayer regularly, often, for ourselves, for each other, today, tomorrow and until he calls us home let's pray Father I thank you for this passage tonight again and I pray that you used it in the hearts of your children for only you can do it and we ask that you would grant us Lord a greater strength for a greater dwelling of Christ in our hearts and that he would come into dwelling in our homes in a greater and deeper measure more abundantly and that we will be able to comprehend with all the saints the breadth and length and height and depth of your love and that we may be filled to all the fullness of God. Lord, let this be true of us. In Christ's name, amen.